The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. If you have this model of AI, which is geniuses design machines, those machines or algorithms are going to scoop up all the data and they're going to make better decisions for you, that's fundamentally anti-democratic. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the democracy paradox. Daron Asemoglu is among the most recognizable names in the scholarship on democracy. He has authored numerous books and articles, many of which are co-authored with longtime collaborator James Robinson, including The Narrow Corridor, Why Nations Fail, and The Economic Origins of Dictatorship and Democracy. Now he has a new book out, co-authored with Simon Johnson called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. The ideas in this book are ambitious. They try to intersect aspects of technology, economics, and politics. So our conversation touches on many different ideas, many different themes that we've talked about on the podcast, like artificial intelligence, economic inequality, and of course, democracy. If you like this episode, please consider supporting the podcast as a premium subscriber. For just $5 a month, you can access a growing catalog of bonus episodes. The most recent discusses the recent elections in Turkey with Michael Wuthrich. Follow the link in the show notes to become a premium subscriber. Like always, if you have questions or comments, I'm always available at jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, here is my conversation with Daron Asemoglu. Daron Asemoglu, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you, Justin. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, Daron, your book was amazing. I mean, the book is Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. And it tackles on a lot of the questions that we talk about on the podcast, including technology. It even gets into a lot of questions about democracy, which, of course, is one of the big questions in your research. But um, I want to start with a question that really caught me off guard, and it's central to the book itself. Why do we assume that technological progress benefits everybody? There is a very good reason for it. In fact, let me give you two very good reasons for it. It still doesn't make it a truth, but two excellent reasons. One is technological progress means humans expand what they do. They can do more things. And in fact, our visions of technology come partly from our struggle against nature. So we think of technology as better ways of protecting ourselves from nature, from natural hazards, and controlling our environment. So it must have some benefits. And second, historically, we are in a much, much better place today than we were, say, 300 years ago. 
And a large part of that is thanks to technology. So the industrial technology revolution, the industrial revolution that started sometime around the middle of the 18th century in the United Kingdom, in Britain, unleashed a set of forces that have made our generation, our parents' generation, much, much more comfortable, much, much healthier, much, much more prosperous, much, much more secure than people who lived, say, in the middle of the 18th century. So these two together create a natural tendency among social scientists and all kinds of commentators that there must be an arc of technology bending towards good things. But the key argument of the book is that, no, technology is what you make it to be, and you can actually do great things with technology, and you can do awful things with technology. And the benefits that we are enjoying right now have not been automatic. It was a result of a protracted struggle in which we had to build new institutions, change the balance of power in society, develop new notions of what we wanted, and redirect technological change towards things that were more beneficial for workers. So let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Why don't we start with some examples? You note that even the earliest forms of technology really created different forms of, I think the best way to put it is inequality. Can you kind of explain how that happened and how those affected people in their actual lives? I think that is just absolutely fundamental. And many people have said it in one form or another, but I think one person who nailed it is H.G. Wells in The Time Machine, which we quote at the beginning of the first chapter. You know, he said, well, you thought technology is about controlling nature, but it's as much about humans controlling humans. So that's the double role of technology. You can do many things with it. And once somebody controls technology, what's there to stop them to put them into a higher pedestal, give them greater status, greater wealth, greater power? So it's always been like that. That's why it's a 10,000-year, 100,000-year struggle, except that we have better data and the issues of automation and political struggle are more clear in the last 1,000 years. So industrial revolution is as much about inequality as progress. Later, we turn it into progress. But early stages, they had new coal mines, steam power, spinning machines, weaving machines, new factories. And all of those increased productivity, increased what the British economy was producing, but at the same time enriched a small group of people and, in fact, deepened the hardship of a very large fraction of the population who did not experience much real income growth, who saw their autonomy decline, their working hours lengthen, and their living conditions worsen. So. You're kind of creating a dichotomy where we either use technology to make things better or we can use technology to make things worse. Is it really so either or, or is it a case that sometimes technology is used for harmful ways, but it still makes a lot of people's lives better, even though maybe it produces enormous amounts of inequality? Absolutely. 100%. It's not a dichotomy. It's much more of the gray sort. And it's not like rich versus poor, capitalist workers, workers, elite versus citizens, many, many different groupings. So many technologies make some groups better off, some groups a little bit better off, some groups worse off. So there are many grades of this. But that makes it no less interesting. It really highlights the detailed nature that requires deliberation, and hence democracy is critical. We need deliberation about how big changes are happening in society, because they're going to have complex effects. So if you look at the period from the end of World War II to about 
1980. You had disruptive technological change during that era as well. Manufacturing became much more mechanized. You have the early digital technologies such as numerically controlled machinery being introduced in many industries. You have new services emerging. And these are all creating various types of distributional effects. But if you look at the macro picture during that era, what you see is a remarkable one. The economy is growing very rapidly, and it's a shared type of prosperity. So, for example, the real earnings of low-education workers is growing even faster than those of college graduates. Wages are growing at a slightly faster rate than average productivity or GDP. You have unions, democratic processes, much more alive than they are today. So it's a very different type of experience. But it doesn't mean there aren't any losers. There were people who lost their jobs. Some industries declined. Some workers couldn't find jobs and became long-term unemployed. But on the whole, it was a much more shared prosperity experience than what we have been used to before. Today, we have the same tensions, but on a much grander scale. So the next wave of digital technologies, for example, office automation, and then uh, robotics-type processes in manufacturing did lead to bigger displacement. And some of the new jobs, new tasks that were central for the growth of the 1950s and 60s didn't materialize. So you see that workers that used to specialize in manufacturing blue-collar occupations actually lost out while other groups of workers and managers and bosses actually made more money during this period. So before we get to the idea of shared prosperity, I want to dig in even deeper into the ways that technology really kind of develop. And one of the things on my mind is I'm thinking about some of the earliest forms of technological development, like during the agricultural revolution. And that's a period that is well-documented that hunter-gatherers actually lived longer. They had better nutrition. It was considered to be really a step down as we went deeper into the agricultural revolution for a number of generations for a very long time before we got to that same quality of life. But at the same time, when I think through the process of how the agricultural revolution would have happened, I'm thinking of the fact that I don't know that anybody recognized the downsides when it began. I mean, people were just planting things to begin with and continued to migrate and move around, and they saw it as a benefit that they could have a just constant source of food available at the same locations. And then they found that they could settle down into certain areas and that they'd have a consistent form of food. They didn't think of all of the consequences of that. Is that the same thing that we see happen again and again throughout history, that we don't recognize the consequences when we develop these different forms of technology? Well, I think I like the way you did the description of the early technological revolutions related to agriculture and settled agriculture, because I think in doing so, you've avoided, I think, mistakes that many popular authors make about that era. So what we know, to the best of my understanding of the literature, is that some groups of hunter-gatherers, which I have no reason to think that they're not representative, were healthier, had a more balanced diet, uh, were taller, and most probably worked many fewer hours than agricultural workers during the age of big empires, such as Egypt, the Mesopotamian big states, you know, six, seven thousand, eight thousand years after the process of transitioning to agriculture started. What we also know is that there were 
many different ways in which that agricultural transition took place. And there were probably many factors at play. So, for instance, two well-known sites in Anatolia, Chatalhöyük and Göbekli Tepe, more or less around the same time, give and take a thousand years. But one looks to be a very egalitarian, less social stratified agricultural, early agricultural society. The other one seems to have been very hierarchical and, in fact, may have become hierarchical even before it became fully settled. So that sort of shows there were many different ways of doing it. And I don't know what people understood at the time they started doing the transition. Almost surely one important element was yours. It's been documented from a number of sites that people became semi-sedentary. They started storing food and coming back to the same places where they had some good track record of semi-domestication or the fertility of the soil was good. And at the same time, there was what anthropologists used to call complexity emerging, meaning that there were greater stratification, like in Göbekli Tepe, where there's a religious caste emerging. There are people who become more like the elites because of political or religious reasons or shamans. So it's a complex process. So we don't know exactly what happened during that time period. Undoubtedly, some of it is exactly what you're saying, which is that people didn't understand what they were getting into. And some of it is that, you know, they were coerced. During later periods of technological transitions, there are several examples of state building going hand in hand with changes in production technologies. And sometimes that's because there is a political revolution and somebody centralizes power in their hands and then induces, coerces others through a coalition and through some coercion to be the producers while they can be the elites enjoying the fruits. So I think both of those are relevant for today. I think new economic relations, most of all, require some sort of persuasion. You need to convince people that this is what they should do. This will be good for them. It's the right thing to do. It's the just thing to do. And that's why conversations about future of technology, future of work are so central to our current moment. And there is some amount of coercion. If you don't have any other options, you'll have to go with what is being offered to you. And there is always the threat of force in the background. Today, we have that threat of force very much in the background in modern industrialized nations. So persuasion is even more important. I find it fascinating that you write so much about topics about politics and democracy and now technology, because your background is actually as an economist. And so I want to ask you a question from your book that's about economics. You write, the notion of marginal productivity is distinct from output or revenue per worker. Output per worker may increase while marginal productivity remains constant or even declines. That's a lot of words, but at the end of the day, you're saying that the idea of productivity is not necessarily linked to output per worker. How are those two concepts actually distinct? This is the only part of the book that requires a little bit of posing and thinking about it. Because I think even the word productivity is open to misinterpretation. So there are many famous economists that I will not name them, make claims on this, which I think are incorrect. Those claims are rooted in the fact that they're using productivity in a number of distinct meanings in the same sentence. So the best way I understand, or the best way I can explain this, is actually via an example that we use in the book, 
sort of the joke about the factory of the future will have two employees and a man and a dog and machines. The man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure that the man doesn't touch the machine. So that's like a hyper-automated future. Now, think of the productivity measure that many people instinctively are drawn to in that factory. It's output divided by the number of employees. That's huge. You have one employee and this factory is producing thousands of gadgets, millions of gadgets. So if you look by productivity, you'll say, this is great. This worker is hugely productive. But that's an illusion. This worker is not productive. That's the joke. This worker is completely dispensable. He's there just to feed the dog. You can easily get rid of the worker and the dog, and nothing will change in the, machine, in the, in the factory. So his marginal productivity, meaning his contribution, is tiny. And in a market economy, unless there are other considerations such as fairness, rent sharing, et cetera, which there are, and we emphasize them in the book, but in the market economy, the purest model that we have in our books, that worker should be paid a tiny wage. His marginal productivity, his incremental contribution to output is very small. And this distinction is very important because people think, oh, well, you know, we're going to automate. We're going to produce the same output or more output and we need less workers. That's great for workers. They become more productive. No, they haven't become more productive in this incremental productivity, marginal productivity sense. And this becomes even more important because if you think of technology as a broad concept, not just automation, there are many things that we can do to make workers more productive marginally. We can give that worker better tools so that he can do better designs. He can be creative. He can be adaptive. He can do the maintenance of the machines. He can do the repair of the machines. He can do the things that machines cannot conceive or cannot do. But this worker is not doing any of that. His only job is to feed the dog. So that's the choice. What do we do with the tool? That's fascinating because you're making a distinction between marginal productivity, the amount of productivity that that person adds to the productive process, rather than just talking about productivity by itself. Yes. When economists talk of productivity, they sometimes mean exactly marginal productivity, and they sometimes mean output divided by the number of employees. And the two are very distinct. It happens, it so happens that in many of the simplest models and teaching tools that we use in economics, those two are identical, or they are very, very tightly linked. And that is one of the reasons why sometimes people, without realizing it, jump into a huge assumption that the two are going to co-move in reality as well, whereas I think a lot of evidence show that they don't. Yeah, I think the best way to think about marginal productivity would be, is if we add a second worker to this scenario, how much productivity is there? Yeah, he'll, he'll look after the dog too. Nothing will happen in this example. Exactly. Yeah. So that's a great example that kind of helps us understand that if the machines are doing all the work, if the people at the top are the ones that are making everything happen, then adding more workers is going to be not only unnecessary, but just a cost that eventually you need to find a way to get rid of. Exactly. Exactly. But I think it's also self-fulfilling. So one of the things that we mention, and perhaps we should have spent more time on this, you know, there is a sort of a different vision that managers can have. As a manager, I can think of labor as a cost. If the main role in my mind of labor is a cost, and for many companies, it's a major part of the cost, then I'm going to try to cut it. I'm going to try to reduce it. Or I can think of labor, my employees, as a resource. They are the blood and soul of the company. Then if I think of them that way, I'm going to try to find ways of making them more productive. And again, the two are not the same. 
making that lone worker more productive and hiring many like him would necessitate creating tools for that worker. But if I see him as a cost, then yeah, let me get rid of the dog and the man. It reminds me of a story about Elon Musk that at Tesla, he had been trying to automate things so heavily and trying to find ways to let go of different people and have people not involved in the process. And eventually he realized that all of this automation was making things less productive. You know, Elon Musk is a very brilliant character. I mean, anybody who writes the history of our age is going to feature him. Uh, you know, he's a brilliant entrepreneur and he is the epitomization of the hubris of our age. And he's been present when many mistakes were made and many inventions were made. And he's, you know, in his own bumbling ways, kind of honest too. So yes, Tesla was a exercise in excessive automation. But then he came out and said, yeah, we made a mistake. Humans are underrated. Uh, we excessively automated. You know, he was forced to say that because Tesla was not able to produce the cars that it was promising to people. If he had learned from history, he would have known this. The Japanese made the same choices early on when they started feeling demographic pressures. They were way ahead of everybody else in introducing robots. They are way ahead of everybody else today still in robots. But then they soon realized that if you automate and don't have the humans in the loop, many mistakes get made, quality declines, new products become harder to create. So they built a very different system where robots and humans work together. So humans remain in the loop. They remain in the decision-making posts. Can you tell us a little bit more about what humans bring to the table that robots, machines, computers, technology really can't? Well, I think this is a contentious area. So I will give you my perspective, but some people will disagree. And I'll tell you why they will disagree as well at the end, which is partly about your conceptualization of what the human brain is about. But in my mind, you know, humans are completely special. They are unique in their diversity. You cannot reduce to humans to saying, well, they do this better. No, they do many things very differently and better. So the skill that a carpenter brings, a gardener brings, an electrician brings, a designer brings, a tailor brings, I think those are all unique and we should not try to erase them. And if you look into it, they are unique in the way that they bring creativity and difference onto the table. So a tailor is unique because he's trying to or she's trying to find creative solutions and in the process inventing new things, new design. A carpenter is exactly the same thing. It's a complete problem-solving task. And if we try to automate these things, we're not going to be able to do the same type of creativity. So creativity is key. But there's another aspect that I think is very central for human interaction, social intelligence. You know, we as humans enjoy empathy, enjoy social interaction, communication, the give and take, the counter arguments, the group decision making, the group interactions. You can say, oh, those are not relevant. We should erase them. But according to which welfare criteria? And this is the basis for two key arguments in the book. One is we develop fully. The other one, you know, we say that the whole conceptualization in terms of machine intelligence is essentially an ideological choice. We are immediately elevating machines to the level of humans and judging them on the basis of how human-like they are with just that one word, intelligence, and the way that Turing conceptualized it. Whereas I think what we should want from machines is usefulness. They should be useful to humans. A calculator is useful. It's not intelligent. And we shouldn't say, oh, well, you know, 
we can make things more efficient by having workers not talk to each other and not communicate. That is just a very dystopian way of thinking about it. You know, if the humans are what we are trying to improve their conditions, then the fact that they enjoy that camaraderie, that's actually important. That's one of the things that we want to maintain, not erase with automation. So I think it's a very different perspective. We want the machines to be useful to humans rather than some abstract notion of machine intelligence. And this leads into the comments I said, the sort of the abstract, what is it that humans can do? What is it that machines can do? There is a one more sort of ideological step here, which again was most clearly taken by Turing and before him by Church, which is to think of human mind as a computer before we had computers. So that is that everything is just computation. That if the human mind is a computer, that's the step-by-step -step computation. That's, what, that's where our consciousness comes from. That's where our creativity comes from. That's where analytical design comes from. That's where hand-eye coordination comes from. Then we can also redo all of these things with machines. That was the Turing sort of way of thinking of computation, the Turing way of thinking of machine intelligence and all of these things. So once you go down this path, it becomes very difficult to say, look, you know, humans have creativity and machines don't because if the human brain is a machine, we can build a bigger machine and just replicate the human brain. And I think that really misses what's unique about humans. So what do you think artificial intelligence is? Because that's something that I've been thinking a lot about. I've talked to a few different authors about it. And I'd love to get your perspective. I mean, what is artificial intelligence? Well, in the book, one of the versions of the book, we had a definition of artificial intelligence. And then none of the experts could agree with it. You know, they couldn't agree with what was wrong with it either. Some said this is too narrow. Some said this is too broad. Yeah, I think artificial intelligence is a very difficult term to define. The Russell and Norvik in their textbook start with 12 different definitions of artificial intelligence. I think the one that most resonates with people, and this is the one that we go to, is a very non-specific one, human-level capability. But you can see that's a fraught definition. You know, what is that really? How do you define that, etc.? But I think the difficulty is actually inherent in the mistake that we are making here of emphasizing intelligence. I think there are different types of AI. There are different types of algorithms, and they can do different things. Generative AI, for example, is one specific type of algorithm. Leave aside the question of whether GPT-4 is intelligence. You know, it's very clear what generative AI is doing, except it has, you know, hundreds of billions of parameters, so we can't describe it, and its designers don't understand what it's doing. But at an abstract level, it's clear what it is, and then that's going to be useful for performing a range of tasks. I think if you think about it that way, AI is just a continuation of digital technology. So I don't see a sharp demarcation line between digital technologies and AI. Definitely, AI expands significantly, or many AI-type things, facial recognition, language recognition, classification, image recognition, all of these expand on things that we could have done or we did with digital technologies 10 years ago, but it's just a continuation of digital technologies and digital code and algorithms on data. And the question is, is that what humans do as well? To some degree, that's what humans do as well, but I think humans do other things as well. They are much more versatile in the types of cognition that they engage in. When I think about artificial intelligence, it seems like what it's doing is pattern recognition based on large data sets. It's recognizing patterns that people wouldn't see because we don't have as much information sometimes. Sometimes we might see, like experts would know those patterns just intuitively. But then it's replicating those patterns. 
Absolutely. That is what the majority of current AI does. It is pattern recognition and classification on the basis of very, very large training data sets. That's why AI is data hungry. AI is imperialistic. It is in the nature of AI and all of these big tech companies to take other people's data because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to do anything. Now, there are other types of AI. AlphaGo and AlphaZero don't do that. They're not data-driven. So AlphaZero and AlphaGo, for example, they use a huge amount of computational power and some clever algorithmic tricks, but they are not learning how to play Go and how to play chess from other people's data. They have the rules in themselves. And then they're playing themselves. So they're generating their own data. So it's a very different architecture, but it only works for things that have very, very clear rules, such as a parlor game. So you couldn't use the alpha zero in situations in which there is human element. Like you couldn't use alpha zero type of architecture for predictive policing because predictive policing against other humans. Again, though, even the alpha go that you're describing is still pattern recognition because it understands what the rules are. So it's noticing patterns even when it's playing against itself. And then it's replicating those to come up with new rules. Yeah, it's generating its own data and then it's learning on the basis of reinforcement learning type of feedback. And the reason why I'm bringing it up is because I think when we start to think about it that way, we start to understand the limitations of what artificial intelligence does because I think that there's some kind of almost myth that comes up that like artificial intelligence is like magic or something that people think that it can just do anything that we want it to. But at the end of the day, it's all math based. And again, if we think that humans are just thinking based on patterns and based on math, then maybe artificial intelligence can replicate humanity. That's exactly it. Unfortunate though, this may be and hard to admit. I think the problem is we don't understand how humans think. I think there are many layers to human thinking. There are parts of it that may be emergent, that parts of it may be outside the rules of simple statistics and deterministic mathematics. There's a lot of analogy drawing. There's a lot of overgeneralization that gets then sorted out over time. I mean, look at the way that, you know, Noam Chomsky has been making this point as well, and he doesn't get everything right either. I mean, I think he's being criticized by some AI specialists and language specialists. But I think on one point, he's right. You know, the way that a child learns language is fundamentally different and in some ways superior to anything we've seen from machines. It also reminds me of the work of Dan Kahneman and uh, his co-author. I'm forgetting the name off the top of my Tversky, head. Amos Tversky. Yes. And well, unfortunately died young. Yes. And their big insight was the fact that people don't think mathematically, which would challenge the whole idea that AI can ever completely replicate the way that humans think because we don't think in terms of traditional mathematical concepts. Right. I think, you know, Kahneman is an amazing scholar from whom I and many others have learned a lot. But there are two lines of argument in that body of literature led by Kahneman and Tversky. They cut in opposite directions. One is that human thinking is complex and that complexity may not be what current AI programs do. But on the other hand, they emphasize systematic mistakes and fallibilities of humans. And that's actually fuel to the AI people because then they say, or they think, oh, you know, look, humans are so imperfect. We can build better versions of humans. And that sort of emphasis on human shortcomings then triggers the next round of let's use machines instead of humans. 
So there's a feedback there that could have some unforeseen consequences. Yeah, but in some ways, AI is also using heuristics to be able to come up with the patterns that they're using. It's just... Absolutely. It's, and also getting some of the human mistakes into its data set and amplifying them. I mean, look at uh, large language models. Despite the best efforts of their designers, it's been trained on Reddit. And once you've been trained on Reddit, how do you avoid the worst type of human biases and mistakes? So you actually mentioned in the book that AI produces a lot of so-so technology. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, I think I didn't mean to say that everything AI will produce is social technology. And in the book and in my other writing, what I've tried to emphasize is that AI is a tool that could be very useful to humans and could be very inspirational in terms of some new things that it can do. On the other hand, I worry that many applications of AI so far have been social technologies in the following sense that it does the things that humans do quite well, a little bit cheaper, sometimes a little worse. And as a result, it doesn't really improve productivity, aggregate productivity, aggregate performance that much, but it creates a lot of displacement. It creates a lot of distributional effects. So the best example you can think about is customer service. So AI is now used massively in many customer service functions. It just doesn't work very well. Everybody's frustrated. I don't know of anybody who says, oh, I wish I could get the AI rather than the human. It transfers the costs to the user rather than get your problems solved. You spend more time getting problems not solved. But it's cost-saving to firms. But how much? None of the firms are becoming you know, massively more profitable because of customer service. They're becoming a little bit more profitable. They're cutting costs a little bit. That's what social technology is. Compare that to something like what we emphasize, like, the Ford Motor Company's complete revolution of how the factory was organized, how electricity was used, how the interchangeable parts system turned into modern manufacturing structure, how engineers repair maintenance and design tasks were integrated into the production of machinery and cars. Those were revolutionary because they created a lot of tasks, a lot of new products, a lot of new avenues. We don't do that with social technology. At the same time, though, some of that technology can actually be a cost because you give up on something when you set aside human labor. Uh, customer service is the best example where some companies have actually used a competitive advantage by having it where you immediately get a hold of a person when you call the line and they advertise that. Absolutely. You lose something, you gain something. I mean, you know, we don't have the data to do this sort of work because companies are not sharing that sort of very granular data. But if you had the data, my guess would be that they're some high fraction, 50% or so of moderately successful applications of AI. And there is another 50% or so that's not so good loss-making applications of AI. You increase the costs and you don't improve product quality. And we could learn a lot how to do it better. And I think there is a promise of turning AI, especially with generative AI, things that are not so-so. But I worry that's not the direction we're going. So let's let's shift over to what you describe as shared prosperity. and. At the beginning of the book, you have a term that you call the productivity bandwagon. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, the productivity bandwagon is really the essential element of where we started, which is why do we think that technological progress is believed to be so beneficial to pretty much everybody in society? And the idea in some economic models and some economic thinking is, you know, you introduce new machinery that makes companies more productive. As they become more productive, they want to go out and hire more labor. They want to expand their scale. 
And then as they go and try to hire more labor and so do their competitors, that bids up wages. And that's the productivity bandwagon. And then wages and then everybody's pulled together. Everybody jumps onto the bandwagon. But going back to our discussion at the beginning, you see that won't happen when you increase output per worker, but you don't increase marginal productivity. Because firms will say, oh, hey, we can expand our operations by building more machines. And we still need one man and a dog. So we don't need more labor. So the productivity bandwagon requires that all we do with technology isn't automation. We've always done automation. We're going to continue to do automation. We can get a lot of good from automation. But the problem becomes if we just do automation. If most of the technologies are just going after automation, eliminating humans, that's the problem. And that's why 50s and 60s are different than 90s and 2000s. 90s and 2000s, we went all into automation, whereas in 50s and 60s, we automated at the same time. We created new tasks, new products, new functions. One of the big points that you make in the book, though, is that to be able to create a successful productivity bandwagon involves a number of different policy choices, a number of different choices that we make in society. What are some of those choices that we made in the 50s and 60s that actually produced a successful productivity bandwagon? I think there are two aspects to the productivity bandwagon, and the choices are related to both of them. One is that new technological capabilities should expand what humans do so that their marginal productivity increases. So that's the one, not just automation. And second is an institutional and social set of choices so that workers get a fair share of what they produce. They can have failure of shared prosperity when either of these two elements, either of these two pillars breaks down. So you can have all automation and that's not going to generate shared prosperity, or you can weaken labor so much that even when labor becomes more productive, you don't need to pay workers more. So the choices relate to both of them. One is, how do we use our knowledge, our amazing human understanding, advances scientific knowledge? How do we use it? Do we use it? Just for automation, or do we find ways of empowering, enriching the productive process for workers? And second, it's institutional choices. Does democracy work? Is there an oligopoly of firms that push down wages? Are unions representing worker voice? So all of those are institutional choices about countervailing powers and who is organized in what way that is going to be important for how the gains generated by technological advances are shared. I think this gets to something that's much more complex because on the one hand, some people have argued, a lot of people have argued that if we can just create as much productivity as possible, we can just redistribute those gains and everybody will end up benefiting in the end. You're not arguing that. You know, that argument is so deceptively attractive that it is created both on the left and the right. On the right, that's the sort of hyper-individualism of Silicon Valley, for example, like in Peter Thiel, you know, let the gales of entrepreneurship work in the age of AI, will generate wonderful machines and may create inequality, but at the end, everybody will benefit. On the left, you know, the title of a book that came out in the UK summarizes it. It's written by a former advisor of Jeremy Corbyn. It's called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. So we automate all the work and we create a new type of communism where we generate all of that amazing output and we distribute it among everybody in society. And I think both of those are flawed. So how would you imagine us doing that right now? I mean, well, give up that dream. That's the struggle part of our title. It's always a struggle. 
if we're not going to lose that struggle or share prosperity is not going to lose that struggle, it has to be by redirecting technological change and creating countervailing powers. So I imagine trying to create laws that define more of what intellectual property people own. Absolutely. Or define who owns data. Look, we haven't talked about democracy, but it's actually very intimately linked. If you have this model of AI, which is geniuses design machines, those machines or algorithms are going to scoop up all the data and they're going to make better decisions for you, that's fundamentally anti-democratic. So I don't know how anybody thought, well, I thought it myself probably 25 years ago, the internet was going to be like a pro-democracy force. But today, I think that's really hard to believe because the nature of the current approach, the defining approach is so top-down, so centralized. You scoop up data, algorithms control everything. That cannot be pro-democratic. So we need to break that. We need to break that by having a more decentralized, pluralistic, diverse perspective that puts humans at the center. We need a humanist AI. There's a line in the book where you write, Cacophonous voices may be the greatest strength of democracy. And as we're thinking about AI and these large data sets, I mean, eventually you'd imagine that all of the different AI models would be working off of the same data sets if we allowed it. They are. It's even worse than that. Look, again, let's go back to ChatGPT. You know, how is that created? So there is a first base model that is trained with unsupervised learning through generative AI that's trained on Wikipedia. That's lots of free labor that's been exploited by OpenAI and Microsoft. It's based on encyclopedias and Google Books, again, free labor. It's trained on Facebook, Reddit, newspapers, all sorts of publications that are racist, biased, crazy, conspiration theory based from extremist ideologies. All of that gives us the training data. And then if you just look at that generative AI, predict the next word, it's going to say, unbelievably maniacal things. So then what do they do? Then they engage in a supervised learning phase. Where they teach the machine, the algorithm, the model, not to say certain things. Don't say Nazis are good. Don't say there are inferior races and superior races. Don't say Donald Trump is a great president or whatever. But who decides what is allowed and what is not allowed? Normally, we rely on democracy. It's the democratic process that reaches a consensus that we say, yeah, sure, within democracy, we're not going to allow child pornography. That's a consensus. You know, the Germans agreed we're not going to allow Nazi propaganda in the airwaves after their experience in the Third Reich. But now, now a centralized company with a few engineers decides that. So it's incredibly centralized. But for me, it's even more than that. Like the way that we get these different voices in democracy is literally through the different experiences that we have. Meaning that if artificial intelligence all has the same knowledge base, all has the same data set, there's only one voice. Whereas if you have carpenters and office workers and lawyers and all kinds of different professions, it's not just that they know different things, it's that they literally experience different things. Absolutely. 100%. And that's not something we explain in the book, but yes, absolutely. Because I don't think the science is there yet, but my belief is very much like yours, that human cognition is very much multidimensional and it depends on your experiential functions as well. You'll learn something very differently when you talk to somebody face-to-face, -face, when you do things with your hands, when you fail. But even that is not enough because that's the diversity. We can put diversity into the funnel of AI, but what's going to come out? 
Again, the way that we rely on human social intelligence, cognition, democratic processes, civil society, all sorts of other things that have evolved over tens of thousands of years in human evolution for that diversity to merge into something that's productive rather than just polarized. Now, okay, fine, we've failed in that not polarized way in the last 30 years, but at least there is some hope. So if we're going to get back to shared prosperity, what are the policy choices that we should be making? What are some of the institutional choices that we should be making? Because one of the reasons why you wrote the book is that we're not on the route to shared prosperity right now. So how do we get back there? Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I think that's a good place to end because it's our weakest point, but it's the most important point. It's our weakest point because nobody has a silver bullet. But the way I like to think about it is, I think first we want to clarify what are our aspirations. Then we want to change the narrative. Then we want to build the institutional foundations of that. And then we want to talk about specific policy. My aspirations are very clear, and I hope I can convince people that what we want from machines is machine usefulness, in particular defined as algorithms, new widgets, and gadgets that make humans more productive and humans more empowered. We're going to create new tasks new ways of using information for workers of all sorts, and we're going to empower them so that they can become better human agents and better decision makers and better participants in whatever organizations they are in. And we're going to empower them in the political domain. That's the aspiration of what we want from machines, in my opinion. That requires a change in the narrative so that we need to abandon the productivity bandwagon, the naive techno-optimism, thinking that gales of creative destruction will naturally take us to a place where everybody is happy or to stop talking of the fully automated luxury communism. We want to realize that it's a struggle. We have to work to create these things. We have to build institutions. We have to build ways of redirecting technological change. And then we have to actually do the work of building those institutions. How do we build countervailing powers? How do we build institutions that correctly regulate new emergent technologies? How do we create a better democracy? And then we have specific policies to implement some of those things. Now, the biggest uncertainty is about these specific policies because they're not separable from the institutions. And we haven't built the institutions. And there's a lot of pushback. There's going to be a lot of backlash. There's going to be a lot of complications. Look, give you one example. European Union's general data protection, GDPR, was a great idea, but it backfired. Do I blame the European Commission for GDPR? No, I don't. I think they had the right idea of protecting individual privacy to data and how you're going to use your data. But at the end, tech companies are wily enough that they found ways around it and actually may have made things worse. So we have to experiment with these policies. But I think the pillars in terms of policies of what I would like to see are clear. One is we have to stop the expropriation of data by big tech companies. You have to do that via regulation and by building new institutions, such as, for example, data unions that Jerome Lanier has called for. I think we need to discourage the most pernicious types of business models, those based on individualized digital ads that create emotional outrage, get people hooked, and reduce them to passive consumers of news and information from like-minded people or outrageous information from the other side rather than active participants. So that requires different business models. And that, I think, calls for a digital ads tax. We should consider, although I don't think it's going to be a full solution, but we should consider breaking up of the largest tech companies because they are much bigger than any organizations that humans have experienced in the past. We should find ways of introducing worker voice. That is not easy because I don't think the old model of unions is going to work anymore. And very importantly, we should take steps 
to redirect technological change. And there we suggest two policies in the book. One is there is a bias in our fiscal system that taxes labor more than capital, and that creates an artificial reason for automating excessively. So we should get rid of those asymmetries. And second, we should subsidize more human-friendly, worker-friendly technologies, although that's, again, not an easy one because identifying those technologies is not always easy. Well, Darren Asemoglu, thank you so much for joining me today. I want to plug the book one more time, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity. I do want to emphasize that we're talking about some really heavy topics, but this is a really easy read. I mean, it's not a difficult book to be able to get through, and it actually has a lot of interesting stories in it. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for writing it. Thank you very much, Justin. It was a great conversation. Thanks for inviting me. And I look forward to seeing the podcast. If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.